This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You are listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by Editor-in-Chief Mark Galley. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It is a good afternoon, even though it's overcast and cold. Yeah, we're having fun in here. We're having fun. Warm Putting fun a magazine in here. together. And this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Wow, you sound like you're having to work to cheer yourself up. <laughs> yes, Mark is just sad. If you can't golf or fish, down in the dumps. Exactly. All right. Well, Mark, who is our guest today? Our guest today is Russell Jung. He is a professor at San Francisco State University. In fact, he's chair of the Asian American Studies Department. He's the author of a number of books, most recently, Faithful Generations, Race, and New Asian American Churches, as well as a spiritual memoir, A Guest in Exile. We're really excited to have him to talk about a kind of controversial event this week. Hey, Russell, how are you? Good. Uh, good to be here. Are you in San Francisco right now? I'm in San Francisco right now. This is like not our first time that we've had three Californians on the show. It actually seems to happen more common than I would imagine. And Northern Californians. Yeah, you guys probably miss it. <laughs> I, actually, I don't miss San Francisco. I mean, if you don't like overcast and cold... <laughs> I mean, that San Francisco is definitely <laughs> your place for that type of weather. It, it can be perfectly awesome in the rest of the Bay Area, and you go to San Francisco, and it's 20 degrees different. And it might be fair to say I haven't lived in California for 30 years, so okay, I'm more of an Illinoisan. Oh, okay. And Illini, I guess, is the proper expression. You're born and raised, though, right, Russell? Yeah, I was born and raised in the city, as we call it. And uh, in fact, maybe six generations of us have been Californians. Wow. wow. That's incredible. I was born there as well, in fact, St. Francis Hospital, way back in the day. Oh, wow. 1952. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? All right. Well, let's get into our discussion. Writer and public intellectual Rod Dreher's recent comments on poverty and immigration have sparked intense criticisms by Christians and non-Christians alike. In a recent post, Dreher processed his conflicted feelings on Trump's derogatory marks about African countries by drawing a comparison to immigrants from these countries and public housing. I will read an abridged version of these comments. Abridged because... He references some of the president's coarse language on these countries, which I will not be reading on the show. All right, let's think about Section 8 housing. If word got out that the government was planning to build a housing project for the poor in your neighborhood, how would you feel about it? Be honest with yourself. Nobody would consider this good news. You wouldn't consider it good news because you don't want the destructive culture of the poor imported into your neighborhood. Drive over to a poor part of town and see what a disaster it is. Do you want the people who turn their neighborhood a disaster to bring the disaster to your street? No, you don't. Be honest, you don't. While the entire post has drawn criticism, and we will link to it in the show notes so that you can read the whole post in context. Today, we'd like to focus on his comments on living in proximity to poor people and the quote-unquote destructive culture of poverty. Before we get into our discussion about Dreher's comments, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible 
by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And today is actually a really important day in the life of the magazine is what we call 100%, which is when we finish the issue that we're currently working on, which in this case is the March issue. And Mark, from my understanding, we have an article that you edited in the March issue that is about Bible translations. Yeah, it's a very interesting article in which uh, the author presents 10 different translations that you may not be aware of or known about. Translations by the writer, for example, Charles Williams would be one example. Not many people are aware that he, he wrote a translation of the New Testament. There is a translation for Native Americans that he includes. And he just includes a couple of passages to give a flavor of how each, each version deals with the passage under discussion. But the point is, he, he very much wants to encourage Christians to read their, their Bibles from different translations, uh, maybe even spending a whole a month or two or so reading through the Gospels, for example, in one translation, then going through the Gospels again in another translation for the next month. And I think he's right to, to argue uh, that only in this way can we then begin to capture uh, kind of the full nuances of the biblical text in ways that a single translation can't do it. So I think it's, it's a very interesting piece. If by chance you are hearing the word Bible translation and your ears are pricking up, we have another piece on Bible translation that's actually on the website this week. It's called Translating the N.T. Wright and David Bentley Hart Tussle. Um, the recent New Testament dust between big-name scholars reminds us how hard and important Bible translation can be. So that might be some reading for anyone who the previous article sounded interested to. And you can get that most recent article on our website, and the other one will be available in our March issue, which you can get by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. We're going to give our gut check now, which is when we share our visceral reactions to the news of the week. Mark, go ahead. Well, if you haven't figured out by now, I love writers who uh, push the envelope, even when I end up disagreeing with them in the end. If they tend to want to express an extreme viewpoint, I'm, my ears are all up because they often are able to zero in on an aspect of an issue that most people don't think about or are not willing to talk about, and it does raise that issue to prominence so that we have to force ourselves to think about it. And in this particular case, it's one reason I read Rod Dreher sometimes. Uh, reading people that are uh, extremists and emphatic does get tiring, but to pop into them once in a while, is, I find it just intellectually stimulating, and this would be an example of that, where a lot of his prose was exasperating, but then he said some things that I think really were true, and if we're to be honest with ourselves, we have to have to process that. I am kind of late to the party on this controversy. From what I understand, it broke out over the weekend. And on the weekend, I tend to spend a little bit more time away from social media. So sometimes I miss whatever the um, and that is a good thing. frustration. I encourage us all to do that. Tip from last week, everybody. Anyway, yeah, I, I didn't really understand. I mean, I guess I'm kind of responding to the whole post, which I realized that we didn't explain for all of our listeners. But I, I really didn't understand what type of point that he was making. And if there was a good point, I, I, to me, it was pretty much lost in, in some of these other crude remarks. I think it is completely worth questioning people about when it comes to housing and who people feel comfortable living around. And this is a subject that continues to flare up. It, it, I can mention examples in Chicago where this is happening right now. But if you're going to raise that conversation, I think that we have discussed this many times on the show. There's a way to have these conversations that serve to actually really challenge and convict people. And this seemed, if anything, just very inflammatory and getting more people angry, so angry, in fact, that they couldn't listen to whatever point that he might 
good point that he might have been trying to make. And I didn't really see any kind of thoughtfulness in particular on this one. So having said that, though, I'm really glad that we're going to be talking to Russell today about all of this. Um, Russell, we haven't really touched on your story um, and why we're bringing you on the show. So I'm just wondering, can you tell our listeners about, you know, where you grew up, where you've lived, and where you've lived um, most of your life as an adult? So we're, we're talking in context to Rob Dreyer's um, essay where he says, nobody would want to live by poor people who come from Section 8 housing. And growing up where I did, I grew up in a very middle-class San Francisco neighborhood where we had single family homes, where the school districts were good, where the public transportation system was safe. And I could go out um, during the day. And even, at, you know, I walked to school a mile away at the age of kindergarten. So I grew up in um, a very secure, stable community where I knew my neighbors and felt safe and had a lot of opportunities in my neighborhood to get fresh food, to be able to get a job in my neighborhood, and to meet um, other people who were working full-time. So that's how I grew up as a middle-class person. Because I grew up in an area with really good schools, I was able to go to college. And because my parents could afford it, I was able to um, go to graduate school and get a professional career. But at a certain point, I realized that Jesus was calling me to something much more, that he wanted to, I wanted a deeper relationship with him, and I wanted to really fully live out what I found in the scriptures about what Jesus says about justice and evangelism, about being the church, and about following him wholly. And so when he invited the rich young ruler to, you know, sell everything and go and follow Jesus, I thought he was actually speaking to me as a middle-class American, and that I needed to get rid of some of the stuff that I had and try to follow him a little bit more faithfully. I, I didn't sell everything, and I didn't go live among the poor, but I did say I was going to spend three months in a low-income neighborhood. And my aim was, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And I wanted to know, is that really true? What did he mean by that? Jesus said, if you serve the least of these, you're serving me. And I wanted to serve Jesus and meet him in a real concrete way. And so I moved um, during graduate school into a low-income neighborhood um, in East Oakland, California, in an apartment complex with Cambodian refugees and undocumented Latinos. And the neighborhood was called the Murder Dubs. And it was aptly named because it's what the kids call it because there was a lot of drive-by shootings, a lot of gang violence at the time when I moved in. It's at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. And it's still, even to this day, the most robbed neighborhood in Oakland. And Oakland is the most robbed city in the nation. So that's where I moved to. Is that something that you were immediately confronted with when you moved in? Or is that something that it kind of took gaining street smarts to see the longer that you lived in that neighborhood? It was pretty immediately when you, I mean, initially I would drive by and all these guys would wave at me and hail at me. And I go, oh, what a friendly neighborhood, you know, people waving at me. But then I realized they were just trying to sell their drugs and they were just sort of enterprising, you know, pharmacy people. But um, eventually, yeah, r rather quickly, I realized there's a lot of crime here because, you know, when you get robbed or um, there's a lot of violence. And I see my neighbors, especially even the kids, right? Kids who are like eight years old, 10 years old would have their scooters stolen. And so immediately people experience the the, the, the crime in the neighborhood. And then you could tell, I mean, you could just see the physical decay, right? Because there's trash everywhere. There's graffiti all over the place. People dump their mattresses. There's a lot of uh, illegal dumping in the neighborhood. So it's just sort of obvious we're in a ghetto when you you look around you. And uh, I thought I'd just stay there for three months to figure it out. 
And what happened was that I was the guy who found a treasure hidden in the field. I was willing to sell everything to stay in the murder dead because I think I found treasures of heaven here that I can't get elsewhere in the United States, or at least in the middle class suburbs. So for the last 25 years, I spent a decade as a single person in that apartment complex with refugees and undocumented people. And then once I got married and started raising my own family, I stayed in the neighborhood and I've been raising my family there for the last over two decades in a what people would call a hyper ghetto, right? Despite the neighborhood context of violence and gangs, of sex trafficking and uh, poverty, the treasures of heaven I found there were, were the host of relationships that went so deep with my neighbors that I've met Jesus in very concrete and real ways. My neighbors welcomed me with such hospitality that that was a gift, that they were actually people of peace. You know, Jesus sent out his disciples and said to go live with people of peace. I met people of peace. And it wasn't like we, me as a Christian, went out and was a minister of peace. Non-Christians were the ministers of God's peace to me and helped heal me of lots of things. And so I got to receive the hospitality and graciousness of people of peace in my neighborhood. And that's a gift. I received um, from my neighbors a sense of solidarity and a sense of community that I don't think you would find in a suburban neighborhood where people really came to support me and take care of me and protect me. Could you tell us a story of, of how that protection played out? Okay, you got like an hour. <laughs> so our neighborhood, our neighborhood, Back when we first moved in, it was at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, and there was a lot of drug dealing going on in my apartment complex. So every day when I would enter our apartment complex, I'd have to walk by drug dealers and drug runners, guys who would deliver the drugs. And it was so menacing that a lot of the elderly who live in our complex would, would avoid them and walk a block around just to get to their apartment. And we were bothered by the drug dealing, and not necessarily the dealers, but the, the, the addicts, because they would steal anything in order to get a quick fix. So they would steal our tires and you know you would see cars jacked up and the tires missing. They would steal license plates. They would steal our car batteries so that they would just pop our hoods and take our batteries. So I actually ended up padlocking my hood to keep people from, you get the idea. So we were bothered by the drug dealing and the drug addicts. So we began to organize against the drug dealing. The drug dealers knew it was us because we were there were a bunch of Christians living with me and we were the only ones who spoke English and who had, you know, take the time to call the police or actually trusted the police. So they knew it was us who were organizing against the drug dealing and they would slash our tires and they would harass us and threaten us. Eventually one of the drug runners stole my laptop. And I was a grad student at the time and stealing my laptop was like stealing my brain because I didn't remember anything but everything was in that laptop. It'd be like stealing the smartphone of a American millennial, you know, it's like the end of the world for me. <laughs> and I was really stressed because I lost my, my graduate work, but I was also surrounded by enemies. It's like when David talks about being surrounded by his enemies, because every day I would walk by these drug dealers and I would see them and I would glare at them and they would glare at me and it affected my health. You know, it's just painful. So then word on the street was that I could get my computer back. And I thought, wow, that's sort of cool. How often do you get a word on the street in the suburbs, right? But here, it's like, for me, the Holy Spirit giving me a word of knowledge. I got a word from the street that I could buy my computer back. And so I followed the, the lead, and I had to go see a guy named Roach. 
who lived kitty corner to me. Roach lived with George, a convicted manslaughter. And so I go to Roach and go, hey, word on the street is that I could get my computer back. He goes, yeah. You want me to get it? I go, yeah. And so he said, okay, I'll see what I can do. And I was all excited because, you know, I got a word on the street and I'm talking to a guy named Roach. And so I called the police and I tell them, hey, word on the street is that I can get my computer back. And the police were excited because they never get anybody calling them. And they said, <laughs> great, we'll wiretap you. And then when you make your deal, we'll arrest the guys. And for me, growing up in this sort of boring middle class lifestyle, this was like being in CSI or something. I was really excited. I think this is fun. I said, great, let's do this. I'll make the deal. And then you wiretap me. So I, I, I set it up with Roach. And then I call the police back. And say, the eagle has landed, let's get wiretapped. And then they said, oh, sorry, the technician's on vacation this week. And I was like, crap, no wonder nobody calls the police. And, you know, they're sort of useless in our neighborhood. And they don't really serve and protect. They're just, they don't. So they said, well, if you're going to whine so much about losing your laptop, just go buy it back if you want it so badly. I said, okay, fine. And so I went back. I got my my money, you know, in like mint denominations. And it was all set up to go meet Roach to buy back my computer. But then I thought about it. That's sort of stupid. It's not very streetwise to carry around cash in the middle of the night in the ghetto meeting people named Roach. And I thought, oh, I better protect myself. I better, you know, be a little bit more street smart. So I asked my neighbors, these Cambodian guys, if they could watch me because they lived on the um, second floor and they overlooked the parking lot so they could see me making the deal. And they all had guns, and so I thought they could be good protection. So <clears throat> the Eagles landed, the deal set. I'm using my word on the street. I got to meet Roach, and I thought I had the Cambodian guys as my backup um, watching over um, from the second floor. But something got lost in the translation, and the Cambodian guys, and I only asked one guy, uh, two or three of them came out with me, and they all had their guns. And while I was walking out into the parking lot, the Cambodian guys actually were there physically behind me as my backup. So if you've ever seen Billy Jean, Michael Jackson's Beat It or Billy Jean, where you sort of walk out and there's a whole bunch of guys in a phalanx formation walking out and swinging their arms, that's what we look like in slow motion. So I'm walking out with a bunch of Cambodian guys packing guns to go meet a guy named Roach who's got this gangster lean against my car. And so I go out there, excited that the Eagles landed, ex really excited to get my computer back. And I talk to Roach and he goes, what's up? And he said, oh, great. I got the money. Can I get my computer? And he said, oh, sorry, it's been fenced. And that sort of was the end of my big CSI episode. I didn't get my computer back. The Eagle never landed. We never arrested anybody. But what I realized from all this story, getting a word on the street, having Roach work with drug dealers, having the Cambodian guys risk their physical safety for me, I didn't get my computer back. But what I learned is I got my entire neighborhood was there to take care of me and to protect me. And that was much more precious than my computer, knowing that everybody had my back in a dangerous environment, that people supported me and took care of me. And so a couple of weeks later, my car got broken into again. And I was out in the parking lot cleaning up the glass. And my Cambodian friend, Kosal, came out again to help me. And I was thanking him profusely for going out to protect me and for helping me clean up the glass. And he said the simple phrase that sort of summed up what I think Christian fellowship is about and solidarity. So we're cleaning up the glass. I go, thank you. And he goes, it's okay. 
it's all right. We're all in this together. And for me, that meant, yeah, we're all neighbors. We're all family and friends, all in the same situation, needing each other to improve our situation. And um, I never forgot that. I, to this day, I still hang out with my neighbors. I'm assuming the people that were robbing from you and breaking into your car and destroying your car were also from your neighborhood. So it doesn't sound like everyone in your neighborhood was on on the same side. It sounds like there are some people in the neighborhood are, in fact, out to destroy other people in the neighborhood. Yeah, and a lot of it is a factor of how much you get to know people, right? If you can befriend people, and if you know you, gang members will protect their family and friends. And so if you get to know them, and if you know them one-on-one, you realize they're just individual people who are like yourself. So yeah, there are some people who are like wolves, and we have to be sheep among wolves, but there's also fellow wolfhounds and sheep that um, could protect you. Yeah, it's a both end, right? Yep. In in the conversation that we've had so far, I think that you've kind of explored the just the kind of extremes that your your neighborhood presents you with. You know, it, it seems oftentimes that many people are, are tempted to either romanticize or stigmatize poverty. What, what do you think makes it hard for us to acknowledge the complex nature of poverty and how people respond to living in it? I think there's several reasons, especially for Christians, to not understand the complexity of this issue of poverty. First of all, I think um, sociologists call talk about the contact hypothesis, that if you have social contact with people and get to know them, you'll realize that a lot of our circumstances, a lot of our behaviors are not a result of our own actions and our own will and our own values, but a lot of how we behave and a lot of how we act are shaped by our circum- our situations and our external circumstances. So um, the more you have contact with different people, especially people in poverty, you'll realize they're acting out of given the context and situations they find themselves in. If you can't get a job, but you need to make money, what do you do? If your family's not being protected and being a victim of crime, what do you do a lot? So given these circumstances, if you hang around people and you talk to them, you realize a lot of their behaviors and patterns of the poor are not their individual choices, but are oftentimes the circumstances in which they find themselves. So the more contact you have with the poor, the more you realize that we're all acting out of our situations and you don't attribute their behaviors to their individual dispositional behaviors. So I think one reason why we don't understand poverty is because we're not close enough, that America has become more and more segregated that we have these gated suburbs where people may live close in proximity to the poor, but you just drive by them. You see homeless on the street, but you don't talk to them. If you actually talked and gotten to know and developed relationships with people who are different from you, you'll realize that their situations are much more complex than you could ever imagine. Uh, The second factor why it's hard to understand the complexity of poverty, I think, is for Christians, it's a theology. You know, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson wrote about this and why um, we don't understand racism either. It's because a lot of times American evangelical theology is very individualistic, and it's all about one's personal relationship with God and having a personal salvation. So we tend to think in terms of the individual and is the individual right with God. In the same way, when we think about issues of poverty or racism, we think about, is this individual poor? Why is this individual poor? Is this individual racist? Why is that individual racist? And what this blinds us to is that um, clearly individual factors affect us, but there are also sociological factors and extenuating circumstances that shape why a person may be poor, why a person might be racist. So both our theology our lack of contact, and 
the complexity of the issue of itself makes it hard to understand. That's why, you know, people don't like dealing with politics because they don't understand, let's say, a, a ballot initiative. And so it gets too complex, so you just sort of avoid it. So the complexity itself is sort of a hindrance because we like to be entertained and amused rather than to think deeply. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Help our uh, listeners understand, though, how is it that we see in any given context, whether the context be middle class or wealthy or poor, you have some people that act out in ways that we'd consider inappropriate, immoral, destructive, and other people in those contexts, even though the context demands that they act in a certain way, they tend to act in ways that are more healthy and uh, uh, law-abiding and non-destructive. So, for example, uh, we had a young man who lived in our home for a couple years, and he came from a family where his father was an alcoholic and his mother as well, and his two brothers were gangbangers. But somewhere along the line, he decided he wasn't going to do that. And uh, he's always remained a mystery to me as to why he didn't follow the path of his context. And I'm sure you find people, and you've just said, you find people in your, in your neighborhoods who succumb to that and other people who don't succumb to that. So how do you understand uh, how those differences happen? So I've got two examples of why some people seem to do better, quote-unquote, of others fall to more negative behaviors. One great example is in our apartment complex, the kids asked us to help them with their schoolwork and for tutoring. And so we began to tutor them and to encourage education. We would actually, um, the Christians who moved into this neighborhood, we would actually go to their school open houses and encourage the kids for their educational attainment. We also realized that parenting is really important. So we started parenting classes. And if the kids saw their parents learning, then that would motivate the kids to learn. So on a, several different levels, we tried to support the education of our neighbors with mentoring, tutoring, parent engagement, all the things you're supposed to do. We did this for five years and we worked with dozens of kids and those dozens of kids, they all still dropped out. And it's despite our best efforts, there were other factors that made it easier to drop out. Our schools are dropout factories, not, not schools for success. Um, the teachers were disinterested. The schools were underfunded. And so, you know, the reason that the school classrooms were poor. The curriculum was irrelevant. And so there were a lot of other factors that led the kids to drop out. Uh, also, gang influences were really um, powerful. And then what happened is we won a lawsuit and we um, were able to get better housing for our neighbors. And the other thing that happened was that the younger kids grew up more in America and they could speak English better than the earlier kids who were more immigrants and refugees. So they they weren't able to learn English as well, but the younger kids were able to learn English well. So like I said, the first five years, nobody graduated among the boys. After the first, after the lawsuit, and once we got kids who grew up speaking English, they all graduated and in fact went to college. And so here you see, just in our small little apartment complex, you could see that the change in housing situation and the change in English capacity made all the difference for these families. They were within the same families, but the older siblings would drop out and the younger siblings would go to college. So that's one factor. 
But if you look on even on a smaller micro scale, I know families where broken homes face trauma through the war, so the parents are absent, um, go to gang-infested schools, find drug dealing, um, and a way easier way to make money and make much more money than people who go to college. And so within this family, the older brother eventually, uh, even though he dropped out, got a full-time permanent job at Costco and stayed in Costco. The younger brother became a drug dealer. And so what's the difference between these two brothers who grew up in the same family in the same neighborhood with the same opportunities? Why did the older brother end up getting a full-time job at Costco and raising his own family well now? And he would say that he had mentors and role models and peers who supported him in staying and keeping the straight path. And that's sort of the, the simple, easy answer is we know that if, if people have role models and mentors, at least five or six caring adults, that these kids will do better and would, be, would become more resilient. This is called the idea of resilience in, the, uh, in facing poverty and um, trauma. Whereas so the, the younger brother... He didn't take advantage of the role models. They were around, but he didn't, he didn't join our mentoring group. He didn't join our Bible study. He didn't join a church. And since his only role models were his peers engaged in the same activities, he, he became the drug dealer. So the simple answer is, if you could provide peer and adult support, you could have better outcomes. And of course, as Christians, we believe if you have people praying for you, if you have the Holy Spirit, God could do anything. But there's still obviously, in this whole complex mix, there is evidently some role for agency. As you said, the younger brother just chose not to be mentored. Of course, yeah, this individual will, willpower. But um, the American myth, is that the individual could pull himself or herself up by their bootstraps. If they just have enough will and enough perseverance and enough effort, they can individually get themselves out of their situation. And I think that's pretty much a myth. And what people don't recognize is all the social support around them to help these individuals. So maybe clearly we, there are individuals who are heroes and can rise above their situations, but I would argue that behind a lot of these heroes who make it out of the situation are a host of people supporting those heroes. Yeah. And I think it's more likely that those who rise above their situations have social support and especially spiritual support, whereas those who get left behind lack those things. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that a thousand percent. Obviously, there are cultures of uh, poverty that are very destructive that you're living, you know, you've been living in one. You make it really hard for anyone to uh, flourish any family or individual to flourish. I've lived overseas. I lived in Mexico City for a while, and uh, I, I experienced and visited impoverished neighborhoods and impoverished towns, whole towns, but there wasn't uh, a culture of destruction in those t towns, or a destructive culture, I should say. Yeah, yeah. There was there uh -huh. was poverty, but the people there were basically, there wasn't drug violence, there weren't people robbing each other, there weren't families broken apart, maybe more maybe more so than middle-class families, but it didn't have that sense that we get when we talk about a destructive culture of poverty in America. And I assume there's cultures of poverty in America that are, that are not destructive in that regard, they're just poor. I mean, uh, okay, first of all, is my impression correct? Because uh, I will admit not to having lived in those day to day. It is my impression. Uh -huh. And how might we understand what nurtures a culture of destruction? Because even in Mexico, there was racial injustice because a lot of these villages were uh, mostly populated by uh, Mexicans of Indian descent. So there's structural, there's racial structural injustice. There's obviously economic injustice. And yet it didn't seem to breed the violence and decay that uh, some other 
cultures of poverty do? So communities of the poor could lead to a, a, a negative culture of poverty, a destructive poverty versus maybe a healthy, healthier neighborhood. For me, um, a couple of factors that lead poverty to becoming destructive is the prevalence of guns and drugs that really make it easier to be violent and drugs make it easier to have access to quick money that lead to that destructive behavior. For me, at least especially in the American context, the easy availability of guns and the easy availability of drugs are part of that destructive path of poverty. Whereas other communities that don't have, that have gun control, you know, they may have violence, but they're not going to be shooting each other. They may have addictions, but they're not getting the flow of drugs that could just destabilize a community. And, you know, even overseas, drug money and gun violence are, are what's leading to all the deaths and homicides. Um, another factor, though, is, isn't the lack of opportunity, it's blocked opportunity. And so this is the, the notion of oppression, that some communities, they know they're poor and they're just trying to get by as farmers, and they just realize it's a hard life. And so they recognize their life is hard, and they're farming, and they're, they're, they're struggling to make do. But if you're in a transitional community where there's a lot of opportunities, they can actually see the opportunities out there, that you, they see other people getting jobs, they see other people getting ahead, but then they don't have those opportunities, that so they're blocked through lack of opportunity in education, lack of opportunity in terms of networking, lack of opportunities because of political oppression. Those communities then, with the block opportunities, they have heightened expectations, but less opportunity. They tend to lead to more destructive communities. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's also exacerbated by television and movies, which um, yeah, yeah. show uh -huh. lifestyles that are generally beyond the reach of most of us. I mean, the show is not interesting unless it's showing someone living in a nicer home and driving a nicer car than I have. And so one can understand the feeling of frustration when you, it seems like everybody in the world, <laughs> meaning what you're watching on TV and the movies, is much better off than you are. I can see where that could lead to some frustration. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I have really, I just went on vacation to Disneyland. It's the exact same situation. So in Disneyland, you have to wait in line for a long time, right? N not if you know the shortcuts that my yeah, wife but knows. Some people know the secret. <laughs> some people know the secret, you could get a fast pass and you could skip the line and jump ahead of the line. And then you think, okay, should I be jealous of that person with that fast pass? And a lot of times I would think, no, I don't mind because I'll get my fast pass for something else and I'll be patient. But then what happens then is that not only are people with fast passes getting ahead of the line, but people who pay more, they can also cut the line. Am I jealous of them? And I go, no, because I just don't think I'm not in that class of people who could spend so much money. So I don't even think about the possibility of being that class of people who could cut the line because they pay, you know, hundreds of dollars. So I, I think a lot of poor people, they don't even, they see a lot of wealth, but it's not in the realm of their perception or to think I'm going to be like those wealthy people who could cut the line. So I'm not jealous of the people with fast passes. I'm not jealous of people who are in a completely different class. But what happened in Disneyland was that some people began to cut the line even more because the rides broke down in other um, Disney attractions and they were given a free fast pass to go into my ride. And so now I thought, wait, that's not fair. I had this greater sense of injustice. I began to get angry at all these people cutting the line. And it's because Disney gave them that opportunity over me. And so 
it wasn't my fault that I'm stuck in line. They didn't, you know, why should these people get the unfair advantage just because Disney gave them a line? And so I, was, I just got really angry about Disney. I think that's the situation. You know, you could you could be satisfied with your situation until you see this in, injustice or you feel like, you know, you're personally wronged. And then, then I was off cranky and, you know. I'm glad that Mark brought up this idea of a culture of poverty. I'm wondering, Russell, if you think that there's also a culture of wealth that exists as well. Well, Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor. So Jesus says there's a culture of wealth to be had and to be learned from among the poor. And Jesus himself said, again, when you serve me, you're meeting me. And so clearly, Biblically, if we believe in the Bible and if we believe what Jesus said, there's the riches of heaven to be found among the poor and God's movement among the poor. That's what I found. And when I think about blessing, it's not about happy circumstances. Getting a blessing isn't you having um, lots of money. Really, the idea of being blessed by God is means that in God's eye, you have favor. So that even though you may be in terrible circumstances, God still sees you, God still knows you, God still cares about you. And for people from shame-based cultures, having someone's favor, having the respect, having the honor from God is worth way more than, you know, maybe physical circumstances. So the poor are blessed in terms of that they have favor from God, that they're loved and honored and valued by God. And, but they also have some um, values, I think, that we can learn from living among the poor. One is trust. So I, recently I went to this um, encampment. So two blocks from where I live is an encampment of unhoused people where they set up tents. And there's about 80 people in this community um, living in tents underneath the freeway. Ironically, some of them are refugees who fleed their country because of war, lived in refugee camps and tents, for the lucky ones to get resettled and get refugee money, but then end up in the exact same circumstance in the United States living in tents. So I I, I go out and I I meet these people and uh, my family goes out and uh, gets to know them. And we're asking them, well, what do you guys want? What do you need? And the first thing they said was prayer. Out of all the things they could have needed, a warm house, a hot meal, new socks, they realized, or at least this particular individual realized that she needed prayer and that she needed God in her life. And I think that sense of neediness, that sense of trusting God is a blessing that maybe rich people, a lot of times middle-class people, we don't really need God, so we're not always crying out to Him. We don't need God for our daily meal, so we don't pray for food. We're not pressed up by our circumstances to be pushed towards God. And so that's just one of the um, blessings of the poor is with their trust and neediness. And clearly not every poor person is like that, but that's what I tend to see more among the poor is um, this dependency on God, this uh, trust in God's sovereignty that I think a lot of middle-class people lack that kind of faith. Yeah, because, I mean, you keep on making a distinction, and I think it's an honest one, between the poor that impress you and the poor that frustrate you, because the poor that frustrate you apparently are people who steal your car, uh, steal your tires, and people who you have to lock your hood up so they don't take parts. And then there are poor you meet in other circumstances that are extremely impressive and deeply move you. So I think that's just 
part and parcel of, well, probably life in general, but especially in extreme conditions, you're going to find those extremes, I guess. The question I have uh, for you is a more direct question related to the controversy, one of the controversies on Rod Dreher's post. He says, nobody would really want to live uh, or have a uh, Section 8 housing or a, an impoverished neighborhood come and come right next to their neighborhood. I mean, he, he says he seems to think that's a normal reaction. I don't know if he'd consider it healthy or not, but that's just pretty much what people, people don't want to live, especially people who have a family and are looking to their future. They don't want to live in a neighborhood that they feel might be destructive to that. Uh, do you think that's, for a Christian, that is an appropriate reaction? Or, is, or should all Christians yearn to live with the poor? What is your personal view of that? My personal view of uh, Dreyer's comments that nobody would want poor people to move in their neighborhood is a blanket, naive assumption that the poor are the cause of the troubles in their neighborhood. And so, again, this is sort of blaming the victim that the poor are the cause of their poverty and the poor will bring the troubles of poverty into your neighborhood. I don't think he'd say that. I think what he means is that there's a whole nexus of behaviors that occur in many destructive neighborhoods. Right. So that that destructive culture, even if you just absent the the people's agency in that, let's just assume they don't have any agency or they have very little agency and they end up having to continue in destructive behaviors. If that culture gets plopped right next to what we'd all agree is a healthy culture, they're concerned that the destructive culture will infect the healthy culture. So it's not a matter of blaming it's not a matter of blaming the poor, it's a matter of understanding how what these two cultures, what, what would happen if these two cultures butted up against each other? Well, he does both. He does blame the poor for their culture. He says, do you want the people who turn their neighborhood into a blight to bring that into your street? Uh, that's fair. So we don't want to blame the poor, basically. But do we want their destructive culture? Of course not. The poor don't want the destructive culture in their own communities. Nobody wants murder, violence, theft. That's so obvious to me. It's like, duh. You think poor people like getting robbed? Do you think poor people want to be abused? Of course not. All of us in God's children long for his wholeness, long for life to be lived under his rule and have that peace and justice. And so that statement Nobody wants a destructive culture is sort of self-obvious. And then so the real question is, what happens when that destructive culture intermingles with that healthy culture? So let's say you're middle class and you have a quote-unquote healthy culture, and that's debatable in of itself. But let's say you have a more safe neighborhood. Let's say you have a, a neighborhood with more better schools, and then would introducing poor people negatively affect your community? I would argue that if you have good structures and institutions in place, uh, safer, better educated communities can absorb people. And studies have shown, you know, you, you move a low-income kid and give them the opportunities, put them in a, a situation or her in a situation with good schooling and, you know, safe conditions, they'll thrive too, just as well as that other middle-class kid. So clearly, that's why people move into better school districts is because they realize, put your kid in these good conditions, anybody could thrive. And then the question is, well, at what point does it become the tipping point where you have too many maybe low-achieving kids or too many impoverished kids that the schools start going down? And the reasons for the tipping point isn't because the people brought the problems with them. Usually what happens in terms of the tipping point and schools or neighborhoods going down isn't because of the people moving in. It's because the lack of resources and the lack of um, institutional supports come. So, for example, in California, the amount of tax dollars going to public education has declined as middle-class people go to private schools. And clearly then, 
if resources go down, then uh, then those kids aren't going to do as well. Yeah, but that just moves the issue back one issue. In other words, there uh, to take the side of the person who's anxious. That's what they'd say. Well, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to reduce the amount of resources that are given to my school and to my kids, and therefore my kids aren't going to get as well educated. Yeah, it moves the problem back, but but the source of the problem aren't the people themselves. The source of the problem is the the loss of resources, political support, and institutional support for the people in those communities. Yeah. So I just want to really make that distinction. Yeah, the the thing you didn't mention that I thought you would mention is, and I would think uh, this would be a, a factor... Maybe it's because it's such a cliche, but if uh, if a whole if a whole neighborhood was transformed by a Section Eight housing, for example, definitely property values would go down. And property values are very important too. And I will put myself in this situation as as a middle class person who's depending on the rising value of my home to support me in my retirement. So uh, I think that's part of the picture there. Sure, that is. Yeah. yeah, and that can be something that's a. A neutral reaction, or it can be a sign of greed. It depends on the person, of course. So a lot of people are concerned if if certain people come in, it'll affect their property values. And likewise, Trump would argue if certain immigrants come in, it would bring down our country in certain ways, right? And so there's this fear that our way of life, our economic prosperity, our, our well-being will be threatened if we allow other people to come in. And so therefore, we need to build laws. We need to live in safer communities. We need to secure our own lives. And that's valid if your main goal in life is economic success and sort of personal security for this you and your family. But I don't think that's what Christians call is. It's good if you're a middle-class American, if that's your value system. But I think the Christian value system called by Jesus is you could gain the whole world. You could have economic prosperity. You could have a comfortable way of life. You could gain all that. But if you lose your soul, what's it worth? And I'm afraid that a lot of American Christians have lost their soul, that they have no compassion, they have no sense of justice, they have no concern for their neighbors, and all they're thinking about is their own personal well-being or their family's well-being or maybe their group's well-being. And that's clearly not Christian in my book. Sorry for getting preachy. That's fine. We we invite guests (laughs) on here to tell us what they really think. I think Mark and I, we talked about the book Dreamlands last year. Is that right? True, Mark? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, for people who haven't read Dreamland, it's a book about the opioid crisis, and it opens with an anecdote in Portsmouth, Ohio, which is staunchly middle class, I would say, in the 50s, 60s, and probably 70s. And essentially what contributes to the economic decline and quote-unquote culture, destructive culture of poverty that you see in this town is the fact that they lose a lot of jobs. And so when Russell was talking about either if it's poor people who are bringing this in or if there's forces outside of themselves, it just seemed to be a pretty stark reminder that in this case, it really seemed to be larger forces, a.k.a. these big employers who were either moving away or closing completely um, that really ended up kind of being the catalyst um, for what led to the decline of this community. Yeah, I think moving jobs out of the country, in fact, was one of the issues. Yeah. And that particular town is used as kind of like a stand-in for a lot of these communities really ravaged um, by the opioid crisis right now. Russell, I'm just wondering, what types of factors should Christians take into account when they are deciding where to live? Okay, if you have the opportunity to figure out where you want to live and you had your choice, I guess for me, a big factor is what are you called by God to do and to be? And um, if you sense that God's calling you to fulfill His commands, 
to go out into the world and to evangelize, to seek justice and to love mercy, and to act humbly. Then, um, and also the call to be the church, to be his hands and feet in the needy world. Then, then you would try to figure out, okay, where can I be God's hands and feet the best? Where can I live out a life of justice and hope? Where can I be a light in the darkness? And so um, that's one factor. Um, some people are called to the business world, I find, and they live in the suburbs. I find that super admirable because I don't know if I can meet Jesus as easily as they do there. I just know that if I want to learn to live out the Beatitudes, let's say to hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'm not hungry for God's right relations um, in the suburbs because I feel full. But in the neighborhood where I am, I'm always hungry and thirsty for righteousness because I see sex workers who are really young working at night. I see people living in tents. And so that just makes me pray. That just makes me long. That makes me mourn. But then again, there are individual factors. If your kid needs special support, if, you're, if you've been traumatized by violence, then clearly you don't want to live in a bad neighborhood. So I would only move as a family into a difficult circumstance or like go into missions if you have a church or a team that really supports you in your Christian walk and has sort of the similar partnership in the gospel of wanting to be a light in that community. So um, those are the factors that I think about. Is Where's my community? What's it mean to be the church and fulfill my calling? And then I guess the third main thing besides calling and community is where do I see God moving and how can I join him? And I see totally see God moving in my neighborhood. You know the passages where the lame shall walk, the blind shall see, the prisoner are set free? I see that in my neighborhood. Just a block away from me, we have a transitional housing site where um, people coming out of prison are living there. And some of these guys have been going to our church, and they were lifers. They were convicted for life sentences, but then they got paroled, and um, they were set free. And not only were they set free from prison, but in prison, they met Jesus. And so now they're in our church sharing how God has freed them from their guilt and shame from life sentences and give them a whole new lease on life. And so I'm blessed because I've seen prisoners like them set free. We have refugees who are oppressed by poverty and their own countries and their own, this country, but we see them now getting meaningful work. And I see the poor who were oppressed set free. And for me, who is blind, I was a rich young ruler who's like, do I want to give up my wealth or do I want to follow Jesus? I was blinded by my wealth. I'm the blind one who's slowly having my eyes opened to God's movement. And so that's why I moved into this neighborhood, because I see the coming of Jesus's kingdom here. And uh, I just want to join in on that. Thank you so much, Russell, for contributing um, all these stories and thoughts to this conversation. As a reminder to everyone, you can share feedback with us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. Right now we have our segment called Slow to Speak, which is when we hear from our listeners. Last week, as many of you know, what we talked about the media and how the media covers Trump and how we ourselves as citizens are also following what's going on in the White House. We had a comment here from Michael. He says, the discussion with Grace Olmsted provided advice that was needed, I'm sure. And I'm also sympathetic to the need for guidance to avoid, as she calls it, the palace intrigue style following Trump-induced news. Unfortunately, I do not think that the full breadth of the problem was well addressed in either the podcast or her article. It should have occurred to the participants that the very fact that this had to be discussed should have prompted self-reflection on the uniqueness 
or even shock of what is happening. We had another piece of feedback from Jordan Arsenault, who tweeted, good discussion on POTUS's reckless speech. Love the emphasis on supporting local news and paying for print sources. Journalists can't ethically ignore the President of the United States, but they can cover his speech more wisely and less breathlessly. We appreciate both of these different comments and remarks. And as always, your feedback is really helpful in helping us think through the discussion that we had here. So thank you both to Michael and Jordan for these comments. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone here to share something that is bringing them joy this week. Russell, do you have something? Yeah, I have something really exciting um, this week. We have foster daughters um, from Burma. They moved and joined our family about eight years ago. And now they have a baby niece who's going to come live with us. I'm really excited to have a new addition to the family, baby Naomi, who's just a couple of months old. When does baby Naomi move in? She arrives tomorrow and we have nothing set up, but I'm excited to meet her. <laughs> well, congratulations. No, crib, no car seat, but, but, but we'll get it done. When's the last time that you had a baby in the Jung household? Uh, our own kid was like 13 years ago. All right. Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have some books. What is it, Maybe there's a book that you would like to recommend or plug for our listeners? Uh, my book is called At Home in Exile, Meeting Jesus Among My Ancestors and Refugee Neighbors. And it's about our life in Oakland and our ministry and how I've met Jesus through this poor community, but also through my ancestors, from my own Chinese-American background. My culture and my ethnicity have a lot to um, give to the broader American church. And so I have stories and insights of how we could meet God in different ways when we see it through Chinese eyes. I will post a link to the interview that I did with Russell in the show notes, because that's actually how we met. Okay, Mark, what's your precious moment? It's going to happen tonight. All right. I think I've mentioned this before, but I'd like to, I'll probably periodically mention it. I meet with a group of fellow amateur theologians. We agreed to uh, read a passage from a book on theology and discuss it. And we also promise to bring one beer to share with each other. It's called Brewing Theology. So I look forward to that every Wednesday. Uh, this week we're reading a chapter from Thomas Torrance's Space, Time, and Resurrection, which is not an easy book, but one of the advantages of reading it in a group is we can share our mutual ignorance, but then also come up with insights to help one another. People can reach me or... Uh, not, not not reach me. But People can get more of get all more. your awesome opinions oh. through your newsletter. <laughs> she says sarcastically. <laughs> the Galley Report is something I put out every week. It's a weekly newsletter. You can get it at christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, G-A-L-L-I, in which I link to articles and comment on them. Cool. All right. My precious moment is the book that I'm reading. It's called A Terrible Glory, Custer and the Little Big Horn, The Last Great Battle of the American West. I'm reading this book as part of my New Year's resolution challenge, which is to read only books by or about Native Americans, because I realized last year I could give myself a free master's degree if I just went to the library. I was just like, wow, there's so many resources out there. So this is the first book that I'm reading about Native Americans. I'm already learning so much interesting stuff. I learned the other day about a half Polynesian, half white guy. His dad was a Mormon missionary who was really big in the West. He also, he basically did a lot of trading and also navigating people around. I have learned more about the Native Americans on both sides of this fight, which I did not know that there were Native Americans who were also really responsible for helping um, a lot of these American soldiers fight. They served as scouts. 
Anyway, and I haven't gotten to the part where Custer and all the men die yet, but this book is really like a, doing a good job of giving you the stakes of what's going on. All right, people can find me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you are there to listen to the podcast, we ask that you please write us a review and tell us what you think of the show. We read all your reviews and really, really appreciate the feedback. The podcast is also on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced by Richard Clark, Cray Alred, and myself. And again, if you want to support it, you can go to orderct.com slash quick to listen and get a subscription to Christianity Today magazine. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.